How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Oh, hi there. Didn't see you come in. Welcome to the Towards Data Science Podcast. As usual, my name is Jeremy, and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And today's episode is going to be a little different from our usual fare. As you'll know, if you've been following along these last few months, we tend to talk mostly about how data science gets used in industry, how people can break into the space, and so on. But today's episode is going to lean in a much more philosophical direction. We'll be discussing themes like the structure of language, what makes vision problems different from natural language problems, uh, the emergence of artificial general intelligence, and how all these things connect to the current state of the art in machine learning. And that's because my guest today is Xander Steenbrug, who's a deep learning specialist who's highly focused on using machine learning for creative applications, things like generating art, for example. So there's a lot for us to dig into here, and I'm really excited to get to it. Uh, Xander, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Glad to be here. Well, really glad to have you. You've done a lot of work in data science and machine learning, um, including technical work, where you've worked at consulting companies. They're focused on deep mm -hmm. learning, but also data science communication work at Archive Insights, which is your actually very interesting and very successful YouTube channel. Um, interestingly, though, you didn't get into machine learning from CS, math, or software engineering, but instead <laughs> from a kind of mix of electrical engineering, physics, and economics. Um, how, how did you discover machine learning? What made you dive in from that background? Yeah, so I I did I studied uh, engineering in uh, Belgium in Ghent, and I did an education in electrical engineering. So we were doing a lot of stuff with transistors and microcircuits, etc. Um, but then in the final masters, I had to choose my thesis, and there was one thesis subject that really jumped out for me, which was like. Um, it was using EEG uh, headsets to kind of look at brain patterns and these signals that are active in your motor cortex. And the idea was to look at those signals, um, try to interpret the mess of what's going on there, and try to do something useful with those signals. Um, and obviously, as you, as you might have guessed, you know, those signals are very organic. They're very noisy. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so the ideal way to start interpreting what's actually happening there and to sort of get a classifier going was to use machine learning. Now, to be clear, I, I did my master thesis, I think that was 2013 or 14, I can't remember exactly. So the whole neural network vibe was mm. still very, very early days. So in my thesis, I wasn't actually using neural nets, I was using uh, something called an LDA classifier. It's, it's more similar to what you would do in scikit-learn, for example, right? These very traditional old school machine learning methods that do actually work very well on specific problem domains. And so from that thesis, I kind of grew from being an electrical engineer and doing a lot of hands-on application stuff towards getting interested in what you can actually do with the data and the software side of things. And I guess one of the things that really kind of struck me was that if you're really good at software and, and sort of writing these machine learning pipelines, 
it becomes um, surprisingly quick to go from to go from an idea to an actually working implementation. Yeah. You know, if you were designing a microchip, you know, getting from an idea of a new circuit and sort of implementing that and sort of going through the whole cycle of, of you know manufacturing this hardware piece that could take a lot of time. And I guess that's what I really liked about the software is that there is a very short time between idea and execution. That's really, yeah, really interesting. The iteration time um, kind of perspective, yeah. I guess it's what powers a lot of startups and what powers a lot of innovation in this space Absolutely, too. Absolutely, yeah. So speaking of, of the more uh, sort of technical side of things, uh, you're doing a lot of work right now with companies in sort of the consulting space and specifically helping them with integrating state-of-the-art deep learning models into their stack. One of the things I'm wondering about here I mean, it's almost yeah. cliche to say, but you know, they always say 90% of machine learning models end up on the shelf. That's going to be especially true with more sophisticated models. So one of the questions I had was like, how do you, how do you decide what to build in that context? How do you take the state of the art stuff mm -hmm. and kind of convert it into industry compatible form? That's a really good question. So um, for a couple of, so for the past like four or five years, I've been working for a Belgian company called ML6. And the idea there is that we, we look constantly at whatever is happening in state-of-the-art machine learning, and we look at the, the latest data repositories, the latest academic papers, and then you look at a customer's business case, right? You, you try to figure out like what is the exact problem that they want to solve here? Because a lot of these companies, they, they, they try and get into machine learning and they want only the best, right? But if you're doing something like image classification, right, whether that classifier gets like 93% accuracy or 94, 95, well, in many cases, that's, you know, those, those last percentage points, they won't actually yep. make or break the application, right? So you don't actually have to have this latest state-of-the-art model. You basically want something that is fairly good. Obviously, you want to use the technology that's available, but you also want something that's robust in the sense that you know that these machine learning pipelines are going to keep changing, right? That's the big problem with things like TensorFlow. Whenever there's a new version and you kind of dare to update your TensorFlow version, everything stops working, right? Um, and so a lot of effort there, if you go to company applications, is to try and manage um, an application in, in a way that it is future-proof, right? If something changes in the data format or the underlying libraries change or even the hardware could change, you want to make sure that those changes won't kill your application. Um, and at the same time, you also want to give like a little bit of control to the people that are actually working in those companies because a lot of consulting companies, they will provide a solution, kind of a big black box. Here's our neural net. Here's the API. And, and this is how you can call it. But what we've seen is that in most companies, you have a whole bunch of very, very specialized people that know very well what they're, what they're talking about. They might not be machine learning experts, but they know their own stuff really, really well. And so opening up your application for those people to actually start using it is a really crucial um, idea, I think, that not everybody does. Your answer flagged so many interesting components when people talk about, you know, get, or get excited rather about machine learning through things like, say, Kaggle competitions. Um, mm -hmm. This is really that whole, you know, life is not a Kaggle competition theme that I think a lot of people yeah. haven't quite assimilated yet. Yeah, interesting to see as well that your, your answer started as well with the business priorities. Like, what do you want to build? What do you want to achieve? And is the 93 to 95% accuracy thing actually something that, that makes a difference? How many dollars yeah. does that 2% buy you type thing? Exactly.
It, it is too that if you look at something like computer vision, we have a whole range of, of existing models, right? Computer vision has been going on for a while since, you know, 2012's ImageNet. Um, so right there, if you have the latest state-of-the-art model or one from last year, that will really make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you look at something like, like uh, say, natural language processing, there we do have a really big gap between the models that we have today versus the ones from last year, right? Yes. So it kind of also depends on which specific niche within that machine learning field you are looking for an application. Because in some fields, there's been more or less progress than others. And so there again, you know, if you were a company trying to build a chatbot, for example, and you're looking for, um, you know, training a model that can give you word representations or sentence representations, then I might be a lot more pruned to say, well, I would kind of look at the latest model, something like, you know, T5 or, or, or OpenAI's work or something like that um, versus some of the stuff from last year. Why, why is it the case that the improvements in computer vision have been, I don't want to call them incremental over the last few years, but, they, you know, they've definitely, we've hit a certain, I don't know if it's right to call it a plateau, but a point where things are already very solid, whereas on the NLP side, it just seems like we keep pushing the envelope further and further. Obviously, GPT-2, which is still pretty recent, uh, was a huge step up, but then quickly overshadowed itself as well. Like, Why do you think there's such a difference between NLP and computer vision there? It's a good question. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm not a specific like NLP person, but I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is that um, for example, the, the thing that really sparked the progress in computer vision was the ImageNet data set, right? The fact that it was a huge corpus, a challenging problem that everybody could throw their algorithms at and sort of compare how well they were doing. And in the beginning for natural language processing, there wasn't really like the go-to data set to try your algorithm on, right? So in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of new benchmarks that are now open source available and everybody can sort of compare their results versus others, right? In terms of something like classification accuracy, if you're doing classification, is a very clear metric. For natural language, it actually took a while before we got a good metric. We have a whole bunch of them. Something mm -hmm. like the glue score, for example, is a good way to compare models. So we've seen a lot of progress on that side, kind of like making a uniform playing field that everybody could compare with. Um, on the other hand, I, f I do think that um, there was um, some architectural changes that, that we've seen. We've seen the transformer networks, right, where we're using attention mechanisms rather than, you know, the default LSTM-based sequence-to-sequence models. So there's definitely been, like, a big piece of the puzzle was, was, was made over there. And then I also think that if you look at these, these models, like, say, GPT-2 or something like BERT or T5, if you look at the compute resources that those things need, it does look like training those from scratch requires a significantly larger amount of computation than what we need to train something like, you know, sim, a simple ResNet model, for example. So I do think that giving Moore's law like a, like an extra year of time did also have an impact on that on that front. Okay, so there, yeah, a lot of a lot of really compelling reasons there. The one that I think is maybe especially interesting to dive into. Not that you're you know an NLP focused person, but still, you raise this question of essentially the loss function that we're trying to optimize for. At, you know, in in um, uh, computer vision, we have categorical cross entropy or something like that because it's a straight classification problem. What is it about natural language processing problems that makes it so hard to come up with good performance metrics for some of these uh, natural language models? That's a, that's a good question and a tough question. Um, I think the reason is that um, language is, is it's a system that's incredibly diverse, um, even starting from very simple principles, right? So if you were to define 
um, a language, like let's say a subset of English, and you would choose maybe 100 verbs and, and let's say 200 nouns, etc. Even with a very simple subset of language, you would be able to create an enormous diversity of sentences that are actually meaningful. And I think that already hints at the problem, right? Language, for some mystical reason, is has this capability of doing very complicated and very complex things with very concrete and simple building blocks. And so putting that into a, a framework of machine learning, for example, where the complexities are kind of tricky to sort of see how that is going to happen, starts starts with the problem, right? At the same time, language doesn't really have um, this classification kind of problem approach. Yeah. You don't you. You can do something like text classification. Maybe a lot of chatbots today are using it, but really, that's not exactly what we want, right? We don't want to classify sentences. We want to we want to learn what they mean. And in that sense, another big problem I think in in natural language, and this is something that I see the research community is is now starting to to try and tackle, is that for the past I, I would say even ten years, we've been doing. Um, NLP in the language domain only, meaning that all of these models, what they look at is ginormous corpi of text, right? So they only look at words, text, tokens. But I feel, and a lot of people would agree with me, that in order to truly understand what the sentence means, you have to have some kind of an embedded world model. You have to understand a little bit about physics, about agency, about, you know, you have to have language in combination with perceptual inputs, right? Whether you use a camera system or something about audio, I feel like these embedded language models, that feels like a very, very um, useful direction to explore. Okay, so I, I might be at risk of going a little too philosophical with this question, but I'm gonna explore it anyway. <laughs> On the NLP side, one of the philosophers who I think is especially interesting to think about here is Jacques Derrida. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, he brought forward this idea of words as being embedded in nothingness. Essentially, um, you could argue he kind of came up with the idea of word vectors in a high dimensional space. So Derrida points out that like every word we can think of is really just defined by other words. So like if you were to ask me, you know, Jeremy, what's an apple? I could only answer by referring to other words like tree or sweet, or fruit and so on. So his argument is kind of that language is just this huge self-referential mesh. And then we, when you zoom out, you realize that it's actually suspended in nothing. It's just one word pointing to the next word and so on ad infinitum. But no one word is ever grounded in any kind of fundamental reality. Yep. So in the same way, word vectors are all connected to each other. Yes. Uh, they're all related to each other. But that whole structure of language is grounded in nothing. It seems to me that what you're introducing yeah. with this idea of, you know, we need this extra notion of physics or we need some, some computer vision inputs to add to this whole, to add context to this whole thing, is sort of like the step out of that or trying to expand sort of beyond yeah. that and, and root yeah. our definitions in reality a little bit. Yeah, am I, am I kind of getting that right? Or? Yeah, I mean... I've, I actually, um, I think it was almost two years ago, I actually started writing a blog post, but I never actually published it. That was loosely inspired by some famous philosophical experiments. But imagine the scenario that you have an, a newborn baby child, right? And you put this child in a completely dark room. It's a big black box. And the only thing that the child sees is a terminal where it can basically browse Wikipedia, but the text-only version of Wikipedia, right? So it can click links, it can read sentences, it can... So what this child, if it was really, really clever, and let's put all our ethical issues aside here, um, the child would probably figure out that there is a limited set of characters, right? And these are occurring, and then after a while, the child would figure out, hey, these characters, they actually have some patterns, right? There are words. 
And it might even figure out that those words, there is a certain ordering to them. And if you give it a sequence of some of these words, it might say, well, next to, I mean, um, following this sequence, I can give you a whole list of tokens that would be, that would possibly be put there and a whole list of tokens that wouldn't be possible. There. Yeah. So this is exactly what our, our language models of today are doing, right? They are, they're looking for patterns in a huge amount of text data, but if at some point during that child's lifetime, you would put the sentence where it says, you know, you are a child living in a black box and the world, the real world is outside and you will never know it. I don't think that that child would have a genuine understanding of its position versus that sentence. And I think that's really the crucial thing here. Okay, so I, I think this is a really interesting can of worms. It, ultimately, what these models are doing, as you're saying, is getting really good at predicting, for example, a classic example is like getting really good at predicting what words are going to show up next in a sentence. And then that becomes exactly. like the metric that you optimize, and you hope that your model in the process of getting really good at that task will come up with something like a model of the world that, that it needs to come up with in order to get good at that task. Yeah. However, so, so what you're raising here is, okay, well, ultimately, though, you've really just got this kind of brain-dead computational scheme that's not actually learning anything fundamental about the world. It's lear just learning how different words... Well, I'm, I'm not saying it's not learning anything fundamental because our language has structure to it and that, that structure is emergent from the structure of the world, right? The, our language means something and the reason it means something is because it maps onto real actual concepts mm -hmm. that are also present in the world. So in, in the same sense, like there's this really interesting line of research where they train um, unstructured supervised translation models, right? So you take a big corpus of French and a big corpus of English, for example, and by just mining structure from those two languages, without any pair-to-pair -pair translations, you can actually come up with reasonably good translation models because there has to be something in both those languages in common right. for them to be languages, right? They, they talk about the same things. They both have a concept of water and of a gift and of cars, and those words are all related to each other. And in some sense, those structures are true because they are also true in the world, right? So, so these these language models they definitely pick up on things that that are actual knowledge. But I just feel that there is a lot of stuff that you can't simply learn from language if you don't know about the world, right? And I guess maybe this is where the this idea starts to part with with the Derrida approach, where the flavor there is more like words are totally arbitrary. Uh, we could, you know shift our, our it's essentially something like our choice of basis in word space and yeah. everything would still be equally mm -hmm. valid. Things are still yeah. grounded in reality <laughs> at some fundamental level and it's not going to be a coincidence that in French yeah. there's a word yeah. for apple and in English there's a word for apple and they both generally map to the same fundamental underlying thing. That's really Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for indulging that that rabbit hole, that exploration actually. I think you're, you're one of the few people I've, I've been able to have this kind of conversation with. So hopefully <laughs> hopefully, folks are... are, uh, are yeah, equally exciting and I've, i think i've always been interested by this intersection between science and philosophy where where there's these age-old philosophical problems right like the meaning of language and now science is giving us completely new tools to try and investigate and look at those same questions and i think that's really really interesting yeah and actually one more one more um point actually that, that you raised that was at least new to me was this idea that when i asked you know how how are language models facing a kind of a different challenge from computer vision, you said that you're able to, essentially there's more, more chaos in language. A small change results in a bigger semantic, um, you know, you can change a single word in a sentence and you end up with a completely different meaning. Yes, whereas, whereas if you change 10 pixels in an image, it's still the same image. Right, right. right. Okay, cool. So yeah. um, 
where do you see the most interesting developments right now in this field? Let's say anywhere from deep learning to reinforcement learning, the areas that you're paying the most attention to, what do you, what do you see as being most interesting right now? Um, so there was, there's a couple of things. I, I would say that um, for the past two years, I've been closely following what's happening in reinforcement learning because I feel like the big game changer for machine learning would be to step out of digital applications and to really get to work with physical applications where we can do labor in the physical world, right? So right now, 99% of all machine learning applications are software products, right? They do something, they change bits. That's basically what they do. But I think that you know, if you can get to a point where you can get a relatively clever robotic system that has some input sensors, like a camera, et cetera, and you can have it do useful tasks in someone's home, for example, let's say like the cleaning robot that we see in all of the sci-fi movies, stepping out of that software boundary into the physical world, I think is gonna be a huge game changer. But at the same time, if you look at those, um, those research papers, even the state-of-the-art ones, we can see that stepping out of that software domain is very, very challenging, right? If yeah. you wanna get a robotic arm to simply pick up a glass of water, that is surprisingly challenging. Even though it, it doesn't look very challenging, you know, every, every newborn can just do that. It turns out to be really, really tricky, but we've seen tremendous progress. So that, that's the first thing, right? Applying it to physical, physical systems. And the second thing, which is um, a domain that I've been personally doing some experiments in over the past six months, is this entire industry of the generative models. I think generative models are just profoundly interesting to me. The, the fact that you can train a model um, on some corpus of data and you can use that model then to create new data, which has similar structure or, or some some of those aspects of that training data is, is incredibly fascinating. And I mean, I'm just thinking about a bunch of applications, but if you think about um, speech generation or you know generating new types of music, um, these uh, GAN models that are used to, to create images, um, I can foresee an entire kind of generative industry emerging over the next five to 10 years where a whole bunch of companies are using those kinds of models to create a completely new digital ecosystem, right? Whether you have a virtual 3D avatar in some game environment and it actually looks like you because its face was generated with a GAN that had some inputs by you know, taking some pictures of you, or we're looking at completely new kinds of music generated with these models. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on some projects where I'm using GANs to create visual art, uh, music visualization tools. Um, there's a paper from um, Zalando recently where they used GANs to um, to their website. You pick um, a set of clothing and the network generates an image of what you would look like wearing those pieces of uh. clothing, for example. So just just an enormous like enormous amount of potential applications, um, which I think is is super interesting. Well, and you actually you tweeted about this theme earlier. We were talking about this just before we started recording, this idea that one of the big areas you're focused on is not just ways to use machine learning to automate away you know, human labor or your manual tasks, but specifically to find new kinds of value that you can create through machine learning. Yes. Um, on that note, I will say, um, I saw your tweet earlier you were talking about in the context of antibiotics. We have you know, machine learning algorithms that find new ways to discover antibiotics. Um, yeah. So is, is that sort of where, where you're seeing the biggest value add for machine learning today? Is that an unexplored area that 
it's more I, I wouldn't say today, but definitely in the future. So today, the big value out of machine learning is to be able to do existing jobs more efficiently and potentially even automate them, right? That, that is where the large companies are making, you know, their money because they, they see that these technologies, if you give them enough training data, they can basically replace a workload that they otherwise had to pay a lot of money for or that a lot of man hours went into. Um, but I feel like this trend of automating things is eventually going to come to a stop. I mean, there are a lot of things in our society that could be automated, but I don't think we would necessarily want to automate all of them, right? So something like self-driving cars, for example, is going to have a big impact. But I, I still feel that a lot of the personal jobs, like caregiving, for example, and, and people, you know, jobs where a lot of social interaction is present, I think we, we, will, we will have some sense of, you know, those jobs are worth keeping. We're, we're going to keep those. And I think then the interesting argument becomes, well, what can we do with this technology that we couldn't do before? Rather than automating existing things, what can we do that's completely, completely new? And I would say that in general, large companies aren't necessarily the best um, like innovators on, on that aspect. So, And this is really where I think machine learning has this unique kind of position because, because it's open source, right? Every Everything that, that happens in this machine learning space, and this is really amazing about this technology, is accessible to anybody who has a laptop and an internet connection. And I think this is something that we haven't seen that often in, in, in past with different technologies. So really, this is where it's probably also kind of hard to predict what's going to come. It's like in the mm. early days of the internet, would you have predicted something yeah. like Facebook or the App Store? Well, no. But, but as a platform of innovation, I think everybody acknowledges how much potential it has. And, and so this is, I guess, why I've been gradually going into more of these sort of creative applications to try and look outside of the box of, of current and existing businesses. What can you do with this technology that's interesting and novel? Well, I mean, ultimately, it's like arguing against the potential of machine learning, especially deep learning, is like arguing against the potential of universal function approximation. It's um, it's really mm -hmm. just a matter of, of when and not if the technology catches up. But one question I, I do have, though, to follow up on that idea, you mentioned, you know, some jobs, especially caregiving, that sort of thing, are we're going to want human beings to do those. And I, I mean, I, I guess I have a slightly different perspective. I think that as the economic cost of, of healthcare goes up, uh, of getting humans to deliver that care, it's, it, there's also a cultural shift, I think. Um, you know, our generation is probably more likely and our kids' generation is even more likely to be able to adopt those things. Um, some cultures like you know, Korea, Japan are a little bit more open to, to adopting that sort of thing, maybe because of exposure. But there's probably going to be some kind of transition. Yeah, where we like, I, to be honest, I'd struggle with a robot therapist today. Um, maybe it depends on it depends on how much I get charged. But <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> so one related question though is, what would it take for us to get to the point where we have this sort of uh, AGI, effectively, or or a more general kind of artificial intelligence that allows us to really automate automate away a broad swath of of the tasks that today are carried out by humans. Um, on that note, you know, you've got people who think that it's mostly a compute problem, that we just need more and more compute resources. And then other people who think that, you know, we need more sophisticated algorithms. Um, so Rich Sutton, I think, put out a blog post uh, fairly recently, maybe a couple months ago now, where he was talking yeah. about how he's more on the compute side of the ledger. But what are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. Like, um, let, let's take the very common example of, of self-driving car software, right? So 
we're up to a point where a car can drive itself, let's say 99.99 something percent of the situations, but there's still those very odd, strange situations, you know, with maybe snowfall and, and a lot of uh, headlights and things like that, where the car can sometimes make very crucial mistakes. And so the question is, especially in robotics, is like how good does it have to be for it to become practical and for it to actually be useful in practice, right? Um, I'm pretty sure that the initial applications of those things, like let's say the first really good household robotic system that can clean your kitchen and do your laundry and stuff like that, I think it's going to take um, a computational approach. That is my guess. So pretty sure that five years after that same system, you're going to have an identical system in terms of what it can do that doesn't take the computational approach. I think the computational way of doing something is just the easiest way and the most predictable one, because you know that if you crowdsource enough data in, in you know, you, you mine the, the patterns hard enough, eventually you'll get a system that is able to do it. The problem with that though, is that this system isn't very flexible in the sense that if you want to retrain it for a new capability, all of a sudden you have to come up with an entirely new data set and do the whole thing all over again. So as soon as something becomes more computationally tractable in the sense that you have a more efficient algorithm, then I think it becomes much more interesting from an application point of view because you can start changing things on the fly. And so I would say that the first systems that we're going to be able to have those you know, interesting household jobs um, be done by is, is going to take an um, a computational approach algorithms will follow. Well, it's a really interesting take sort of a more nuanced perspective, maybe, than some of the usual either-or uh, camps that you see in this debate. Um, also kind of mirrors more what we've seen, I think, historically. Yeah, I mean, if you look at AlexNet, in the beginning, they were using all of the compute power of the lab, of the research lab, and now you can do it on a sim single dedicated graphics card that you buy for, you know, a couple of dollars. So, you know, Moore's Law will have its will have its effect, and, and initially it's going to give us this, this new thing, and then the algorithms will get better. and because I think this is a big fear, I guess, in the market is that, you know, a really bad scenario would be that cutting edge machine learning systems can only be trained by the really large corporations. Right. That would be a very bad thing, right? Because then you have huge monopolies by companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, um, whereas the end consumer doesn't really have any power to train their own models. And I think that's a really, really bad situation that we want to avoid, right? So I love the fact that Kaggle, for example, is now transitioning from um, a score model where they only look at the final performance to also looking at, well, how efficient is that model, you know, not, not, not necessarily to train, but at least to run, right? So this computational aspect is now slowly entering kind of the, the, the metrics board. Yeah, it's, I guess there's a delicate dance between centralizing power with big companies and then, in a way, almost the opposite problem where, you know, compute gets so cheap that mm -hmm. individual human beings can code on a laptop a machine learning model that could downright be dangerous at some point. Um, there's something similar happening with biotech, for example, where individuals could come yeah. up eventually <laughs> as the, the cost of doing these things goes down you know, you can come up with your own strain of, of COVID-19 or whatever the, the insane um, virus of the day is. Yeah. Um, like, I, well, I don't know that there's an answer to this, but do you have any thoughts on like how how that balance might happen? Maybe there there isn't an answer out there, but... Uh... Yeah, if th there's this interesting debate between 
kind of people that feel like uh, these potentially dangerous technologies need to be kind of um, contained from the general population because who knows might do who knows what. Um, I've always felt that open sourcing things for everyone to access is going to make everyone better in the end. It, it's like this, this approach that Google takes for their internet security. It's like they literally invite people to try and hack them, right? Here's our stuff. It's all, it's all out there. Um, try and hack us. And if you can, we'll give you a reward because then we found another vulnerability. And I feel like for a lot of these, these machine learning technologies, the same might be true. Like if everything is open source, everything is going to be tried, but at least we'll know about it, or at least we'll know, you know, which tools are available. And then I think the debate just becomes more easier to have because there's no secrecy, right? If you have these big corporations that are doing large R&D projects internally, but you have no idea what they're actually working on because they're not open sourcing anything, it becomes much harder, I think, to track the potential uh, malignant uses of this technology. So I'm a big fan of, of open sourcing just because it makes the, the public debate a lot easier. Well, and what you've alluded there to, obviously, is something that comes up a lot in the context of, of what's since become known as the FOOM debate, this idea that, um, or this question of how AGI is really going to emerge. Is it going to come overnight, um, or are we going to be able to have a gradual, sort of slow approach to AGI where we can kind mm -hmm. of uh, mind our bets along the way? What side of that debate do you find? I mean, obviously, sorry, this is a totally unfair question because nobody really knows, but based on your, your intuition, what, what do you think is likely to happen there? Um so in, in general, I would definitely say that the, you know all of the progress we've seen so far is, is, is like gradual, right? It's gradual, incremental progress, building on the shoulders of whoever came before for you. I do feel like, um, like specifically with these, these language models, right? The, these latest language models like GPT-2 and, and BERT and T5, for example, I think right there, I was kind of um, surprised by the degree of emergence that you see in those language models in the sense that you have a very simple objective, right? Predict the next token or predict some missing tokens in the sentence. And you have a huge training corpus, which could basically comprise anything that you find on the internet. And those models, which have billions of parameters, they somehow learn this, you know, implicit semantic knowledge graph um, that tries to compress all the information they've seen in, in that training data. And they can start to do things that you wouldn't intentionally sort of program to do. Like I remember seeing this GPT-2 blog post and they showed that if you queue the model with a bunch of mathematical equations, and then you, you know, say two plus two is four, three plus five is eight, uh, one minus two equals, and then you let it autocomplete, it can actually do math. Mm -hmm. could do language translation. I mean, it wasn't very good at it, but could do a little bit of translation. And so I think that scaling up these models is, you know, it's incremental. It's just following whatever is possible in, in the sense of hardware. But combining that with um, the, the ability to tackle like ever larger data sets. Um, and I mean, in the future, I'm thinking a lot of these companies are going to start training video models on the entire YouTube database, for example. Yeah. So I think figuring out ways to leverage existing machine learning technology um, to leverage the information that's available on the internet, which is a completely open-ended domain, I think that is where we're going to see some very, really, really interesting things. So I'm, I'm not in, 
I don't think anyone is going to invent a new algorithm overnight that's going to become AGI. That That's not going to happen. But there might be research projects that aim for leveraging that already exists in the world in a completely new scale, which might lead to, I think, very impressive results, even with the technologies and the algorithms that we have today. Okay, so that's that's the second time I've heard you express an, an interesting view that's not quite in either camp. Most mo- most things in life are nuanced. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, great. Well, uh, maybe as a final question, this one's going to be a little bit off uh, off course from from where we've been talking so far. But uh, do you have any advice for people who are looking to transition in this space who get really excited maybe about this topic, the creativity and <clears throat> ML stuff, every everything you've discussed yeah. here? How would they? How would you recommend somebody today make that transition? Yeah, I, I get this question a lot. And and what most people are looking for is an answer like, you should read this blog post yeah. and then you'll know everything, right? O- honestly, uh, obviously that doesn't exist, right? Um, so what I, what I usually tell people is find an area that you are really passionate about, you really like to spend time on. And this doesn't have to have any business applications, right? If you love creating music, or if you are a photographer, or if you, you know, whatever kind of hobby that you have that you're really, really passionate about, try to think of a way, like, what could I do with that hobby if I knew some machine learning skills? How, how would I apply machine learning skills on top of this thing that I already love? And if you have some combination of those two things, it becomes very, very easy to spend time on experimenting and reading blog posts, reading papers, and just messing around because you're doing something that you really like. And this is always um, the way that I've learned new things is I never learned something because I thought, you know, oh, this is going to be super interesting. It's going to probably make me a lot of money. No, I was always like driven by like an intrinsic motivation to learn something new and to do something that that was worth my time. So I think the biggest advice that I would give people is, is just, just Try to figure out what what do I really enjoy doing, and you know how can I use that as an entry hook into machine learning? Because machine learning is so big, right? Mm-hmm. There there's so many things to learn. You know, you you can't simply learn machine learning in a couple of months. It you really have to pick a niche, pick a specific subset of this domain, and try to work your way in steadily. And that's just a lot easier if you're if you're doing something that you love. Fantastic. Well, I think that's actually really good generalizable advice. Um, thanks so much. Yeah. Really, I really appreciate the conversation today. A little bit unusual for us uh, on the podcast, talking more about the <laughs> philosophical side of things. That's right. Um, but that's great. Do you have any any social media links you want to plug? I know you got your YouTube channel. I think people should check that out for sure. Yeah, I think for, for most of the stuff that I'm doing, Twitter is a really good um, sort of follow-up uh, tool. I, I, I post a lot of stuff on Twitter. Um, and then apart from the normal YouTube channel, uh, my new kind of experimental project on creating visual art with machine learning, you can find that on Vimeo and the channel is called Neural Synesthesia. Awesome. Neural Synesthesia. All right. Can you spell? <laughs> I was going to say, can you spell? Yeah. Something? So synesthesia is this interesting medical disease where um, people can actually, they can perceive um, a certain kind of um, perceptual category, like images, but when they see stuff, they also hear something. So there's this confounding in their in their cortex happening, where there's like signals from multiple senses going from one to the other. And I kind of alluded to that in the name, like neural synesthesia, because I'm basically mm-hmm. I'm taking audio as an input, but then I'm using a generative model to turn that into visuals. And so the model is kind of confounding those two perceptual categories. Jeez, in a it, sense. It's too bad Oliver Sacks isn't alive anymore because uh, this would be <laughs> j- right on target for his stuff. That's great. 
Um, well, and, yeah. and as a last thing, then would you mind kind of providing your your Twitter handle so people can look you up there? Yeah, the Twitter handle, the, my Twitter handle is at x Steinbrugge. So that's like S T E E N B R U G G E. Awesome. Okay, so we'll make sure to link to all those things as well in the blog post that will accompany this podcast. Um, but that's right. Thanks so much, uh, Xander, for making the time. This is a really great conversation. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was a good conversation. You too, man. Thank you.